the Lost Islands also remembers the extra verse in the theme song over the end credits. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Mark Griffiths. Mark, what are you up to and where can we find it? Hello. Hi, Tim. Well, the very uh, latest thing I'm uh, working on, it's a play about Douglas Adams that I've written. It's called We Apologise for the Inconvenience, and it's on in Liverpool on the uh, 21st and 22nd of November at um, 81 Renshaw Street. And it's on at um, 3MT in Manchester on Saturday 25th of November. And yes, it's quite exciting. It's about there is a period in Adams's life in 1984 when, notoriously late with deadlines, his editor basically held him hostage in a London hotel in an attempt to get him to complete the manuscript of So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. So the play is a sort of um, wildly fictionalised account of this sort of uh, literary siege with Adams kind of locked in his hotel room and kind of... Uh, procrastinating wildly so he doesn't have to sit down and write this book and if anyone's interested i will be reviewing that so keep an eye out for that when it goes online so anyway mark your first choice i mean douglas adams had a real grasp on the early microchip revolution techno evangelism but not everyone did and i think these two poor chaps might fall into that category uncle eric is helping police with their inquiry <laughs> <laughs> Now, I know my obscure 80s pop hits that weren't, but not just have I never even heard that, I've never even heard of it. Mark, what was that? Well, that was Five Minutes by a band called Mainframe, which is probably about as obscure as it gets, really. I only heard it because uh, in the mid-80s I used to listen to a, a show on Signal Radio, which came from Stoke. Uh, even though I grew up in North Wales, it was just this show I'd found in the evening that got me into this sort of alternative music. And on one evening, uh, these guys from Mainframe were obviously being sent on junkets around radio stations by their record company to plug their amazing song. And yes, it's a strange beast, isn't it? I mean, back then, sampling was a fairly, it was um, not quite as subtle as it became later, shall we say. I mean, I imagine most records these days involve some kind of sampling but it's so kind of low-key that you don't really notice it just using obscure little loops from 30s jazz records and all that sort of stuff but back in the 80s you, you really knew you were listening to a sample because you know it was uh, a human voice played back through a keyboard at some unnatural pitch you know all that kind of stuff 
One thing I really like about this record is, I mean, it's that that very little her genre of the sort of half single, half radio play. It's got that sort of spoken word thing that was ties in with the sampling sort of um, wave of that mid eighties, where you had people like Paul Hardcastle with that enormous hit nineteen, which used all the uh, news reports from the Vietnam War. And it's slightly less successful sequel single. I don't know if you remember that, Tim. The one about the Great Train Robbery. I do. That was Just for Money with Bob Hoskins on it, wasn't it? Think about the money. (laughs) Which was on, I think it was Now Six that was on, and that's probably the only reason anyone remembers it. Yeah, that's how it will survive in the future generations, I think. Yeah, but I I I think it's really, yeah, an interesting but little little used genre, that idea of having a little sort of dramatic playlet over a sort of sampled musical soundtrack. Well, you see, you say that, but what strikes me about it is, apart from the sampling, everything about it seems just a couple of years out of date. The record itself sounds like something from the early 80s. It doesn't sound, you know, even like sort of post-Frankie, sort of Billy some sort of stuff. It sounds really like post-early Human League. There's also the whole idea, mainframe, even though by the time I started doing IT support, people were still, when they didn't want to show their ignorance, would go, "Mm, do you think it could be the mainframe? Having no idea what it was, but even then the term mainframe didn't seem as futuristic, it's a bit tick and talk really. And the whole vibe is the computer program, and it really, I just looked this up, this came out in June 1985, which was just about when Live Aid was going to wipe the last remnants of all that intelligent techno-pop off the face of the charts. And they didn't stand a chance, did they? I know. I mean, one of the things I, I like about it is the sort of endearingly clunky and obvious nature of the samples. There's no doubt that you're listening to a sampled you know, sound there, that this record involves loads of sampling. And they're keen to show off just what their sampler can do, you know. Do you know if they did much else apart from this? I, oh God, I haven't a clue really, no. How, how could you top that though? Well, absolutely true. It's interesting though, just as an aside to this, that you mentioned being able to pick up BBC Radio Stoke, because I could as well in the Radio Merseyside region. And the show that I discovered was... Well, it was actually called Samantha's Sunday Night Party, so obviously it was on Sunday nights with Samantha Mia, who, I'm not sure how old she was, she sounded like she could have been about 15, 16, who would come on and play indie records and be very sort of uncouth with what was essentially an early zoo radio posse. I loved that show, and I don't really know. Very, very briefly, I was in touch with her in the early days of the internet, because I wrote something about it, she emailed me out of the blue, I've no idea what happened to her since then, but she was really talented, and I, I hope she's doing well, whatever she's doing. It's obviously all going on in the pop trees, wasn't it? How were they getting the signal out everywhere? Well, maybe Mainframe could tell us. Okay, well, from nighttime radio to daytime TV, and I know what's coming, listeners, and I'm not really sure that I want to cover this, but we're going to anyway. <laughs> Good morning. Lulu wants to dance all night. Colin and his two-year-old want to sleep all night. And Jeremy wants to turn an honest penny. (laughs) On Kilroy today, we ask Acid House, why stop the party? Okay, well, I mean, you're all saying, yes, we all remember Kilroy, because obviously that was Robert Kilroy Silk presenting his BBC daytime talk show. But it isn't just Kilroy. This is, and I quote, 
the bloke who pulled his pants down on Kilroy. Mark, do you really want to tell us about this? Um, well, I mean, you ask for things that uh, people may not remember, and I seem to be the only person in the world <laughs> who experiences this. Can I just check before we go any further? Are you sure it wasn't just Kilroy himself? <laughs> No, no, it was definitely an, an audience member. Oh, if you're there, pardon the pun. Right, so yeah, in the sort of late 90s, me and some, some friends who were out of work used to do a fanzine, and one of the features in it was called Jobless Whispers, and it was it was about all this stuff, all the kind of weird bits of TV you got to see because you were on the dole and had sod all else to do all day and all night. And this was a particular um, standout one for me. Um, yeah, so I'm watching Kilroy in the morning. Can't even remember what subject was under discussion that day. And then the guy in the audience is sort of slightly helping pale ginger guy jumps to his feet and loudly announces that everybody in this country is so repressed, pulls down his trousers and underpants and gyrates his hip with some abandon, I have to say. That's not going to make anyone any less repressed, is it, really? No, I mean, if ever there was an argument for repression, uh, I think it's kind of behaviour, to be honest. So, yeah, there was a sort of... um, terrified couple of seconds of silence before people eventually realised what was happening. And I remember particularly one woman in the audience shouting out, my mother watches this! And Kilroy uh, asked for security to come on and said, uh, actually, can he be removed? Can he be removed, please? And uh, the guy was uh, strong-armed out, trousers round his ankles. I don't know about you, Tim, but that's why um, if I did pay my licence fee, that would be why I paid it. Well, obviously nobody remembers that, because as people listening will know, I've done a couple of bad TV clip shows and I've been shown clips of Kilroy and things and they've never wheeled that out so obviously everyone's forgotten that but I have a Kilroy memory that nobody remembers which is this was quite early on when it first started maybe about 1987 88 where there was an edition about when I say celebrity lookalikes not people who you know work for agencies and go out and be Del Boy at your dad's 60th party or whatever it was people who actually in their day to day life emulate the look of famous people past and present and it was quite interesting because people were quite hostile to them and there was one guy who made the point very very well who was a kind of vegas elvis character yeah who said quite impassionedly said well you're all making fun of me but i work for a charity in my spare time and i go around and visit dying children in hospital and i'd be elvis for them and it makes them laugh but the problem was, he said it in an over-the-top Elvis drawl. It sort of really undermined what he was doing. But the other great bit from it, which is why I would love to see this again, was one of the... Because they always had experts on Kilroy who absolutely looked like somebody made them go on at gunpoint and they'd not been given any preparation for what they are going to talk about. One of them, bizarrely, was Stephen Wells from the NME, the great much misvoluble writer who used to write a lot of radio comedy as well but he was obviously being swells he was very hostile to the whole idea but there was a guy who it really wasn't canny as resemblance i think he'd have work done on his nose to be honest but he looked so much like you know you get a lot of people who try and look like john lennon the hippie era john lennon yeah this guy was cavern era john lennon to a t absolutely and he he was being quite sarcastic throughout it and stephen wells rounded on him sort of turned around and said come on mate what would John Lennon think of you to which he immediately replied in a terrible John Lennon voice what would Duncan Gortier think of you <laughs> like the whole studio audience erupted with laughter and obviously you know Swells did as well but 
<laughs> I kind of that was a useless retort to the whole argument because he didn't even he didn't even look anything like Duncan Goodyear. Well, I think that's probably the point there. I think that's quite a good comeback, actually. That's I mean, daytime TV. There's a whole thing about all these things that are just made to fill time, made for the moment, and most of the time you see it or you don't, and it's gone forever. Yeah, that's it. These I mean, apparently the skill writing wasn't taped or. It was. It's still taped over the next day. I think Kilroy's got them, like Frasier, he's got them all filed in his basement. <laughs> but speaking of tapes, there's a good link if ever there was one. This is something that, even being quite familiar with the band, I knew nothing about until you mentioned it. So let's just have a listen. <laughs> Okay, I think a few people listening might have figured out who that is, but not be at all sure why they've not heard it. Mark, who was that? What was that? And why was it? Well, yes, three excellent questions there. It was a track called Disneyland by um, a band you've probably heard of called Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And it appeared in about 1980, 1986, 1985 on um, a sampler album put out by the ZTT label. It's a Twix Frankie's LP, so after Pleasure Dome and before the sequel Liverpool, and I was a tremendous Frankie fan, so the prospect of um, actually there were not one but two new Frankie Goes to Hollywood songs on this album. How exciting was that? Well, quite exciting before I actually heard them. So yeah, I mean, quite it's not bad Disneyland, but it's just such a forgettable B-sidey jingly thing. It's actually quite an early track. I think there's a, like a Peel session or a David Jensen session where they have performed an early version of it. Yeah, because it sounds more like a Factory Records band than it does like them, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's a bit of kind of straight off the peg of noise sampling in there in this version. But I mean, it's very, very much something that was tossed off in their lunchtime. Well, I was going to say, it makes me think a bit of, I'm guessing that it must have been a bit like, you know, people must be saying that, ooh, there's a new Frankie Goes to Hollywood track on this at last and it must be like when In the City by Elastica came out about a year after their debut album which was on a sampler album and it was promoted as ooh new Elastica material it was very clearly something from the first album sessions that they hadn't been bothered finishing Right. and I get the impression with Disneyland as well that it was just that it was left over from Pleasure Dome sessions and they'd not finished overdubbing it and they just thought ah just put that on there no one will notice. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a bit lacking in the um, magnificent Trevor Horn production department, definitely. But yeah, this isn't the only Frankie track on there, also on there. And this still to this day, it makes my, my blood boil just thinking about it. I, I, I have the uh, the offending item here, actually. And it, yes, a live version of Born to Run. Frankie fans would, of course, know that, you know, they did a tremendous cover of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run on the Pleasure Dome LP. And so here on this ZTT sampler, we have this live, in inverted commas, this live version of Born to Run, which turns out not to be a live version at all, but in fact, 
studio version with a bit of extra reverb and a little bit of crowd noise dubbed over. Would anyone really have wanted a genuine Frankie Live track anyway? Because I was at the whole point of them was they were a tremendous studio act. Well, um, actually, uh, you know, I mean, it, the cliche was that, oh, you know, they can't play their instruments and it's all trailer horn and the art of noise doing everything. But that's n- not true at all. I mean, if you listen to those, those early, like, Peel Sessions, like I said, there's a version of Pleasure Dome years before Trevor Horn got his hands on it that sounds pretty much like the final thing. Oh yeah, I mean, the Two Tribes Peel Session version has the intro, the riff, and the drumming is pretty similar as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, apart from, you know, that um, incredible number he did on Relax, the actual sort of compositional and arrangement sort of contribution of horn isn't it actually as, as much as people often think yeah so i mean a, a live version of once born to run i thought yeah that's a really exciting track so live versions how you know how can that not be a good thing i still don't know because i haven't heard one one really good thing that actually did come out of this zdt sampler album for me was discovering the work of the composer andrew poppy there's a couple of extra extracts from a brilliant um, orchestral piece he did called The Object is a Hungry Wolf. So I'm really, really glad to have come across that. But as far as Frankie stuff goes, then uh, that, that album's not, not quite the event I thought it was going to be. Well, I was going to ask if there's anything good on it, because I have always thought sampler albums for labels generally tend to have absolute rubbish on them. But there are two that I've always really, really been grateful for. There was one was Food Records, which was EMI's sort of alternative offshoot, which Jesus Jones, Shampoo, bands like that were on. They did, obviously every release was like Food 1, Food 2 and so on. When it came to Food 100, they did a sampler where one of the tracks on there was Blur's withdrawn single that never came out, Never Clever, which would have been the follow-up to Pop Scene. And for years, I mean, it's a terrific song, for years that was just hiding in plain sight. And I knew very few people who'd heard it, and it really felt like something to have this secret great Blur song. But the other one was, there was an Island Records one in, I think it was 1993, which had You Ain't Gonna Take My Life by Ice Cube, which people were surprised by the fact I'm a massive Ice Cube (laughs) NWA fan, but that had to be left off the Predator, the 1992 album, because it was... Tim and Sandra, it's just after Ice T did Cop Killer and it's directly about the Rodney King riots and when I saw Rodney it got me so hot maybe want to go off and pop me a cop it's one of the best tracks Ice Cube ever did and unless you I think it was a B-side in America but over here unless you had that sampler album you didn't have it but every other sampler album I've ever heard I've not really hung on to should we say okay well for obvious reasons because according to the tabloids they're going to murder us all in our beds while we slept you never really got Frankie Goes to Hollywood on children's TV but in sort of the 70s and the 80s you got much more unusual people on children's TV and I'm going to say they didn't come much more unusual than this And who's oh, hello? <laughs> and who, sir, are you? Well, as a matter of fact, my name is Trixia. <laughs> you see, I'm the younger brother of Jack, you know. <laughs> but I'm not fussy. You can call me Trixie if you wish. (laughs) I'm one of the fellas. Are you English? No, I'm French, actually. Oh, that's what I thought. Yes. And you were um, 
you were saying? I, I was, I was saying that uh, you, you, in actual fact you look tremendously like um, Charles Hawtrey. Is that correct? You, you, you guess. Off top, whatever. Nah, he's guessed. <laughs> Charles Hawtrey. How about? No, no, it? Yes. Yes. Okay, well, that's of two very familiar voices, maybe, and a program that might be familiar to some people. Mark, who was that, and what was that? So that was Carry On actor Charles Hawtrey turning up on Mike Reed's Run Around. That uh, that brilliant seventies kids game show. Just have to say it like that, don't you? Yeah. So this is rather a surprise. It, this this would have been about nineteen seventy eight or something like that. So I would have been about seven. Oh, yeah, watching r- run around and out pops Charles Hawtrey as a sort of camp vampire character. Even though I, I'd only have been about seven, I was aware of the Carry On film and aware that they mostly happened quite a few years ago. So I was even at that tender age, quite surprised that Hawtrey was still working as well, still toddling around. Although from this performance, obviously, um, you know, he was, I think it'd be fair to say he'd taken a drink and was probably not at the height of his powers. Well, really, this was around the time. His career was sort of really in decline by then, because I don't think he did that much after the Carry On films. I remember seeing him on TV a couple of times, hearing him on the radio and a few things as well. But he obviously had some issues, because most of the time all you heard of him was that the tabloids had, you know, followed him being gay in the built-up area, basically. How dare he do that? You know, that he really came in for some stick for that. But you have to say, in this appearance, he's not really investing in the character of Dracula. He is basically Charles Hawtrey from the Carry On films with a cape on. And he's seconds away from following Sid James down the street. And Sid James saying, what are you up to, you great nit? And he says, ah, me no speaky English, please. <laughs> now, that's, basically, it's the same, isn't it? He's, he's the same as he is in everything, pretty much, that we've seen. Well, yeah, and... That's what we love about him. I think, obviously, you know, I mean, it's just that persona, and it was just, it was just lovely to see it popping up in this completely unexpected place. Well, it's true that a lot of people whose careers had sorts of nosedive, particularly if they've been in the musical variety era and early stars of TV and radio, they did turn up on children's TV a lot around then. I mean, I remember I remember seeing Ivor Cutler singing "Get Away from the Wall" on Cracker Jack, which. Again, it's something I'd love to see again to prove that it really happened. There was a guy called, apparently he was really big in this day, called Savine, who was a ventriloquist, who, what I particularly remember is he used to come on with a puppet dog, which would say nothing, and the real dog sat next to it. Eventually the real dog would say, that dog's not going to talk, you know. <laughs> which, as a, as a youngster, I love Frankie Howard was all over children's TV. And... I wonder if, how much of it was their agents, like, just saying, oh, they'll do anything, but how much of it was people who'd come up on the production side, who remembered watching and liking these people as children and thinking, well, children will still like them, I'll throw them a life. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's true, and I think, I think sort of camp works in in a children's TV context, uh, as long as it's not too filthy. That kind of character, I think, uh, you know, is quite, sort of, works well in that context. Um, And I think, also, I mean, everyday random factors like living just around the corner from the studio, being able to get there, time to do something. These are things that, you know, great theories and history books don't really tell you about because it's just the really kind of quotidian stuff that, you know, about, about how these programmes are, are created. Well, that's the fascinating thing I always found about Kenneth Williams' diaries, that even more so than, you know, the acidic, bitchy stuff about his co-stars, was the fact that in those days there weren't repeat fees, things didn't get put out on commercial media, really. Once you'd done something and it had been and gone, 
that was the money gone from that. So you get this weird thing where he does really high profile things, you know, big plays in the West End or hugely successful films. And then straight away afterwards, <laughs> he's being hit with a custom pie by Little and Large or something just because he needs to keep making money. Yes, yes, it's all work, darling. Well, as you can imagine, all over that appearance, there's all kinds of terrible, terrible, spooky sound effects. And some of you listening will probably be familiar with the BBC Records death and horror sound effects, which apparently Mary Whitehouse got quite upset about at the time, which is full of really hammy, campy, over-the-top, bat-goes-berserk-and-attacks-man kind of sound effects. But BBC Records and Tapes did a really long series of sound effects albums, covering all kinds of subjects, and I don't think it came much weirder than this. Okay, Mark, what kind of sound effects were they? Ah, yes. Offbeat sound effects is the name of this album. Um, yes, as you as you say, uh, the BBC put out loads and loads of sound effects LPs for you know Amdram people and radio uh, producers to select their effects from. And when I was a teenager, uh, my friend Richard and I, for the first five years of secondary school, would would write and record comedy sketches on a on a tape recorder. Yeah, so BBC sound effects LPs were a big big part of our lives, really. And this one I'm particularly fond of because I think it's got the, for me, sort of ultimate sort of BBC sound effect, which is the much, much used glass crash sound effect, which just turns up absolutely everywhere. And this doesn't sound anything like glass smashing, does it? That's the That's weird it. Thing. I mean, it might just be because we've heard it so many times. I mean, you know, when you say a word over and over again and it loses all meaning, it's a bit like that, really. You stop associating it with, with the, uh, the actual event it's supposed to be representing and you uh it loses all context there's that that famous scream sound effect that hollywood affects people insert into every kind of action film and it's just a little sort of nod and a wink to something oh yes there it is you know but yeah these BBC sound effect LPs were very very important to us and quite often I would sit and I would listen to a sound effects LP and if I found an effect that I really really liked then I would I would write a sketch around it so it was kind of inspiring in a way well I've just been looking at the track listing and I hope you wrote sketches around some of these because I mean these really are offbeat sound effects I've just seen this ye oldie car engine there's jabbering mice exclamation mark but I really hope there's one based on what's now my favourite because I assume it's supposed to be Door Creek with Echo but on this web page I'm looking at it's mistyped as Door Creek with Eno <laughs> so that's the 45 minute ambient version and even that's edited down from the full length <laughs> but I was going to ask if you had many other sound effects albums but there's one that I know you definitely must have had because I also had this which was number 26 in the sound effects series BBC Sci-Fi Sound oh, Effects yeah. which for anyone who doesn't have it not only does it have effects from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it also has the 1980 series of Doctor Who, which is Tom Baker's last one, has some effects from Blake 7, from, I think, all four series, actually, and, of course, from Radio 4's Earth Search. Of course, everybody remembers and loves Earth Search. Well, that, that did have inner airlock door open and close, which I'm convinced is a Radiohead song. <laughs> I assume you had that one and you actually listened to it straight the way through, because I know I did, bizarre. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, how how interesting to listen to something like, you know, Golga Frincham, Ship B background for three and a half minutes. Isn't that just a hum? 
I seem to remember. I mean, you know, I mean, because Richard and I were doing, amongst other things, sort of sci-fi themed sketches, then, a, you know, a good spaceship background was quite a find for his wrist. I quite like the fact that on the, the Hitchhiker's Effects here, they've got the, um, let's see if I can remember it, the Penargalong Kangaroo Relocation Drive sound effect. Yes, they, they have it engaging under eye. Ah, good one, you know, obviously, yeah. Can't have one without the other, really. And yeah, and it's got, you know, sort of Hagunenon sound effects. So stuff from these sort of John Lloyd episodes of the radio series that haven't really turned up elsewhere. So that's quite nice. Well, the odd thing was that, you know, if you had any sound effects album, you'd occasionally notice some of the tracks turning up in other places. And the weirdest one ever was, was a blur B-side. I think it was the B-side of Girls and Boys actually called Peter Panic. Where it was a song about an alien, but it started off with a book activating code from Hitchhiker. Oh, really? Yeah. And ended with Aurak being switched off from Blake <laughs> Seven. You know the. <laughs> oh, no, so yeah. they must have had this album. Fantastic. I mean, those Aurak sound effects are just just brilliant. Yeah, the, the Aurak switching off noise. That was the one you did in the playground the next day, really. Wasn't I still sometimes make that noise myself when my computer closes down. Yeah, well, yeah, you could, yeah, you, you know, you could load it into computers where it makes that noise, couldn't you? It'd be rather tragic, but quite, quite, quite pleasant. Moving rapidly on from impersonating Blake Seppin's second computer, because remember, Zen came first, bet you'd all forgotten that. We've just mentioned Doctor Who being on this album. Now, the 1980 series of Doctor Who is very specific reference as it is, but I think you're about to get more specific, aren't you? This place is called Tranquil Repose. I think we should leave the dead in peace, don't you? When we finished here, can we take a real holiday? I know somewhere that is truly tranquil, peaceful, restful. Panacea for the cares of mine. Can't we go somewhere fun? Fun? Oh, I suppose anywhere will be peaceful after Necros. All right. I'll take you to... Right, I'm going to introduce this, Mark, because there's no point asking you, because you just have to get it out of the way. It isn't just Doctor Who, it's, and I quote, missing the first episode of a new series of Doctor Who because you were on a day trip to Blackpool to see the Doctor Who exhibition. Now, I'm guessing we can probably narrow this down to a year or two at the outside. Well, no, this this happened twice as well, this bizarre kind of Doctor Who-themed Sophie's Choice in my life. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in a town called Mould in North Wales, quite close to the English border. And every sort of September, there'd be a company that ran a, a coach trip to Blackpool, which I was always very keen to go on because it meant going to the Doctor Who exhibition. Um, but on, on a couple of occasions, that trip coincided with the day that the first episode of a new series of Doctor Who was broadcast. So it was like, good news, you're going to the Doctor Who exhibition bad news, you're going to miss the first of the new Doctor Who's. And this was particularly galling for me. Firstly, the first one, I have to I've written the date here, 2nd of September 1978, because it meant I missed the first episode of the Reboss Operation. The first episode in the key to time season that no. set up the whole conceit over the next 26 weeks or 
whatever it was. So I I had to come to Rebus Operation Episode 2. Well, I was going to say, you've got two important questions here that come immediately to mind. One, did you actually think about what was going on in the key to time? Because for anyone who doesn't know, it's a huge 26-week, basically one story linked by smaller stories. I think, yeah, I mean, I must, I must have got the gist of it from either, as I say, from Doctor Who Weekly or from a paper or something. Yeah, because I remember... In episode two, you think, what's this, what's this tracer thing? Geiger counter thing. Uh, but eventually, yes, you know, I, uh, being, being a clever kid, I've seen cottoned on what's going on, but. It was quite, it was quite galling to miss that first one. And can I just ask as well, given that you missed the first episode of the Reboss Operation, which is actually good, did you then see all of the Armageddon Factor, the last story in the key to time? Because as far as I'm concerned, everyone involved just gave up halfway through that, and I really feel sorry for you if you had missed part of the Reboss Operation and had to sit through all of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have particularly fond memories of the Reboss operation compared to it. I think the only key to time story that sticks out is the Pirate Planet because it was because the, the captain was so frightening. Towering work of genius that was the, the Reboss. And the terrible thing is it happened again two years later. 30th of August 1980. First episode of The Leisure Hive. That's when I missed the complete revamp of the series. New producer Jonathan Turner. New theme music arrangement. New titles. New costume for the Doctor. Missed that completely again, turning, tuning to watch the second episode the next week, and it's like, WT fuck is happening here. It swings and roundabouts though, because in missing that episode, you did also miss the start of it, which for anyone who's never seen it, is basically almost an hour long pan across Brighton Beach until it eventually comes to Tom Baker. It's as though, you know, it's a new start for Doctor Who, but it's as though they're trying to not let go of that old style for as long as they can. I only saw that a few years ago, that first shot. And, yeah, it just goes on and on. You think, okay, I, I, I know there's only three other channels I could be watching, but I know it's just very, very strange. It's, it's interesting, though, that there is the thing about if you missed, well, not just Dog Day, anything in those days, if you missed it, it wasn't likely that you'd see it again. Things didn't get repeated that often. With Doctor Who, you know, you might have the, the tie-in novel to fill you in later down the line, but... I'd get a couple of repeats in the summer as well. If that, but even that didn't happen that often. But when it came back in 2005, the really interesting thing was, when Rose, the first episode, was on, when they announced the date, weirdly enough, I was going with a load of people that I used to go to sort of a Doctor Who fan group with to see Harry Hill live. And we're like, oh, hang on, it's on the same day. But not for a second did we think about not going to see Harry Hill, because we knew everyone had videos, some of us had DVD recorders at that point. It was just pre-hard drive recorders. It was going to be repeated on BBC Three twice in the week. It felt like no risk at all not seeing it. I know, it, it loses that, that excitement, that preciousness, because it's not, it, it stops being a fleeting thing. It becomes a actually pin down and now there's the impetus that if you don't watch something like stranger things when it actually comes out that people will spoiler it for you so that's the thing that didn't really happen in the days of doctor who unless you're a particularly devoted reader of fanzines even then they were wrong half the time <laughs> well thankfully you don't have to listen to this episode that looks unfamiliar when it actually comes out because it's going to download itself and it will sit on your hard drive until you do in the meantime do go and see we apologise for the inconvenience and Mark thank you it's been a pleasure thank you very much Top of the Box by Tim Worthington 
complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. More details at timworthington.org.